Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, welcome and thank you for attending tonight's program, Journey Toward a Cure, Updates in Crohn's and Colitis Research. My name is Angela Dobes, and I am the director of the IBD Plexus Program for CCFA. This program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech and a sponsorship from Sigma Tau. Now I have the pleasure of introducing our three speakers for tonight's program. Dr. James Lewis, Professor of Medicine at Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Lewis also currently serves as the lead scientist for CCFA's IBD Plexus Initiative. Dr. Michael Kappelman, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Dr. Kappelman currently serves as Chair of CCFA's Pediatric Affairs Committee. And finally, Dr. Francisco Sylvester, Professor of Pediatrics at University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And Dr. Sylvester currently serves as Chair of CCFA's Pediatric Research Organization for Kids with Bowel Diseases. Uh, Jim, do you want to yes. take us on? Good, good evening, everybody, uh, and thank you for attending tonight's session. I have the pleasure of speaking to you about why you should believe in the role of diet and the gut microbiome as part of the future IBD treatment paradigm. I want to start by introducing you to the concept of what is a microbiome. A microbiome is a collection of microorganisms that live together in a community in various parts of the environment. Indeed, microbiomes have existed probably since uh, the earliest life on Earth. On the left of your screen, you see an image of one of the pools at Yellowstone National Park. The beautiful colors generated in these pools are a product of the microorganisms or the microbiome that live within these pools. On the right, you see a depiction of the many microbiome communities living within our human body. Not surprisingly, the organisms that live in the different parts of our body are unique to that site. And it turns out that our intestines are home to the highest concentration of microorganisms within the body. Indeed, it is estimated that there are approximately 10 times as many bacteria living in our intestines as we have human cells in our body. You can extrapolate from that to ask whether, in fact, humans are only 10% human and 90% microorganisms. But leave it to say that these microorganisms that compose our gut microbiome have a very active role in our health. Before going further, I want to remind you of how our intestines work. Our intestines are there to take the food that we consume and turn it into nutrients that we can use to provide uh, energy to all the different cells in our body. So every day, we eat a variety of food items. They enter 
into our intestines where our digestive machinery breaks them down into very small molecules that we're able to absorb into our bloodstream through which these small molecules can travel to the various parts of our body. However, not all of the food that we consume is able to be absorbed, and a proportion of this is delivered to the microorganisms that are living within our intestines. In turn, these microorganisms can consume and utilize the nutrients which we have consumed uh, as energy for themselves, but also to produce additional small molecules which can have a biological function uh, within our intestines or, like other nutrients, can be absorbed into the bloodstream and travel to other parts of our body. And then, of course, that um, which is not utilized by ourselves or by the microorganisms living within inside us is passed out as feces. With that as background, I want to tell you briefly about a clever study that was done uh, several decades ago that helps us understand why what's living in our intestines is so important. In this study, uh, the investigators took three patients who had a loop ileostomy. As many of you know, an ileostomy is a, is a surgically created connection from the bowel to the abdominal wall so that the content of our intestines travels out into a collection bag connected to the abdominal wall as opposed to passing all the way through the intestines to the rectum. A loop ileostomy is a special type of ileostomy which has a connection going back to the distal intestine. So these scientists took three patients who had required resection of part of their small intestines for Crohn's disease. As part of their surgery, they also required creation of this loop ileostomy. What we know is that when Crohn's disease recurs, it almost always recurs at the site of the previous surgery. So these surgeons went in, took a look at uh, the area where the bowel had been sewn back together while the loop ileostomy was in place, observed that the bowel was completely healed, took the content that was coming out of the loop ileostomy, so what was in the intestinal tract that was coming out into the bag attached to the skin, put it into a syringe, and squirted it back in to the downstream part of the loop ileostomy so that where the intestines had been sewn together would be exposed to these intestinal contents for the first time. After doing this for a week, they went back and looked again at the area where the bowel had been sewn back together. And amazingly, in all three of these patients, within one week, their intestine had gone from completely healed to having evidence of active inflammation. This fascinating study of only three patients taught us a very important uh, lesson. That is that there's something in the contents of our intestines that was driving the inflammation in these Crohn's patients who had had their disease previously resected. So what's in the content of our intestines? This includes the food that we eat, the products that it's broken down to, the bacteria that are living in our intestines and other microorganisms, and of course, our digestive enzymes. 
As such, it feels as if one or more of those things must be contributing to the inflammation of Crohn's disease. And this is therefore one of the major goals is to understand which of these is actually driving this inflammation. I also want to highlight the fact that we know that the bacteria that lives within the intestines of people with inflammatory bowel disease, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, is in many cases different from the microbiome of people without inflammatory bowel disease. You can see on the left hand uh, of this slide the results of a study done as part of the CCFA's microbiome initiative, highlighting this subpopulation of patients with IBD whose microbiome is different. Each of the dots on that slide represents uh, the microbiome of an individual person. If you can imagine this very complex community summarized into a single, single dot, and you can see in the circle this subset of people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis whose microbiome is generally different from that of the healthy controls who are colored red. And the nature of these abnormalities is highlighted on the right-hand slide showing that the composition of the organisms living there depends somewhat on the portion of the bowel where you examine this. Recognizing that the microbiome in patients with inflammatory bowel disease differs from healthy controls, one therapeutic strategy might be to change our gut microbiome. A recent study examined the concept of actually taking somebody else's stool or the organisms living within the feces of a healthy person and putting this into patients with ulcerative colitis to see if this would improve the inflammation and symptoms of patients with ulcerative colitis. And in this randomized controlled trial, you can see that a proportion of patients who were treated, a larger proportion of patients who were treated with this fecal microbiota transplant were able to achieve a clinical remission and an endoscopic remission. But what was particularly interesting about this study was that it mattered from whom you received the fecal transplantation. There were six people who were donating their stool, six healthy people who were donating their stool for use in this study. One of those donors, if you use that person's stool, 39% of the people who received the stool sample from this donor went into clinical remission. Whereas if you got placebo or if you got stool from any of the other five donors, only five to 10% went in remission. And this suggests that it's possible that you have to have a special composition of the stool to really have a therapeutic benefit. So a special composition of the microbiome to have this therapeutic benefit. But recognize that stool is quite messy. Um, and I don't think that fecal transplant will be the long-term solution uh, to this approach because of the messy nature of it, both messy in a physical sense, but also in the unknown. What other diseases might we transmit in the process of transferring stool from one person to another? In many ways, you can think of fecal microbiota transplant as an ultra-probiotic. And indeed, there have been a number of studies that have examined the potential role of probiotics in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. In particular, some early um, favorable results have been seen 
with E. coli nissel and a, and a, con a collection of probiotics referred to as VSL number three. And so I would encourage you to keep your eyes open for further work in this space. Now, an alternative strategy, rather than just directly trying to change the microbiota, is to change our diet. Because remember, it's something in the intestinal lumen which may be driving the inflammation. One of the alternative approaches is to change our diet. Um, and the best data on the use of diet as a treatment for inflammatory bowel disease comes from the many studies of extreme restriction diets using a what's referred to as a defined formula diet or taking nearly all of one's calories from a liquid formula. And I just want to highlight this one study that was published already a decade ago where these defined formulas, a defined formula diet, was compared to corticosteroids, the old standard first-line treatment for patients with Crohn's disease, in children with Crohn's disease. Both of the groups of patients, regardless of whether they were treated with the diet or the steroids, felt better. But importantly, healing of the inflammation occurred solely with those children who received the defined formula diet, suggesting a potential role for an exclusion diet or this defined formula diet in patients with Crohn's disease. Furthermore, we've gone on to show uh, in this study that was linked to the microbiome initiative that the degree of exclusion of foods may be important. So children that take nearly all of their calories in, in, in one of these defined formula diets were much more likely to demonstrate healing of their intestines than those who took in only about 50 or 60% of their calories from these diets. We also know from data that uh, came from CCFA partners that patients already are adapting their diets. Um, and when people ask me, well, what should I take now until the research is further along? I say that if you ask most patients what they eat that makes them feel better, the two things that are most consistently reported are yogurt and rice. While there are a number of different things that people eat, which they're likely to say make their symptoms worse. I encourage you, again, to keep an eye out on this field and look for this summer for the results of the FACES study, which perhaps some of you on the line might be part of. This is a randomized clinical trial of two modest dietary interventions that's being conducted within the CCFA Partners Framework. Over 200 patients with Crohn's disease have been enrolled in this randomized trial and agreed to be followed up for one year. And as I mentioned, we expect to have the early results of this trial uh, this coming summer. So lastly, I want to comment on the third potential strategy, which is rather than changing our diet or changing the composition of the microbiota, is to change the small molecules that are produced by the organisms living within our intestines. Uh, as a reference, I will point out that there's already an example of where these small molecules impact on human health. As a paper, a very interesting paper published several years ago, showed that the formation of plaque in our arteries of our heart, the condition that leads to having heart attacks, is in part driven by a small molecule that's derived from the food we eat but produced by the bacteria living in our intestines. And at this point, we believe that a similar pathology 
could play a role in the etiology or the cause of inflammatory bowel disease. To that end, as part of the CCFA's microbiome initiative, the FARM study has been set up to try to understand which small molecules are produced by the bacteria that are living within our intestines and from what type of food are they produced. Uh, so we hope to compare the metabolome in the stool and plasma of patients before and after having uh, tried these different diets and manipulating their uh, intestinal microbiota to really understand the biology behind these small molecules. So let me conclude by just uh, emphasizing that we know that what we eat impacts our microbiome, both in composition and the small molecules that are produced. Our microbiome may directly impact on our gut health, and we know that our microbiome uses our diet and digestive tools to make new small molecules, which themselves can have important biological functions. In the future, I believe that there's the potential for therapeutic strategies that will be built around either changing the microbiome, changing our diet, or changing our metabolome. And so at this point, I'm going to hand the presentation over to my colleague, Dr. Kappelman, to tell you about comparative effectiveness research. Thank you very much to the CCFA for allowing me to present tonight, and thank you to the audience for sharing a portion of your evening with us. I have the opportunity to uh, tell you a little bit about the emerging field of comparative effectiveness, safety, and outcomes research. So for patients with inflammatory bowel disease, treatment options abound. We have both medical therapy, including conventional medical treatments, as well as newer biological medications and other small molecules. We have surgical therapy. We have nutritional therapy, including the types of uh, dietary treatments that Dr. Lewis just described. We have a host of emerging complementary and alternative medicine treatments and other treatments that uh, are growing in uh, interest and use, including fecal um, transplant and others. And in many uh, cases, we're actually in a situation where we have too many treatment options that exist and too little data to inform everyday treatment decisions that are made by patients and clinicians. And in fact, we need much more data regarding treatment effectiveness. At best, we have data currently that compares one or a number of different treatments to placebo but head-to-head -head comparisons of existing treatment options are virtually non-existent. We know a little bit about the safety of our existing therapeutic options, but we need much more safety data. And for patients living with inflammatory bowel disease, um, we're faced with a chronic condition, and understanding about a particular drug and a particular time is actually less important to understanding treatment strategies and how those may evolve over time for a particular patient. And in particular, we need more data to compare and help us understand, is it better to take a step-up approach, maybe starting with the conventional therapies or the safer treatment options, and in patients who don't respond, stepping up or gradually 
um, using more uh, more advanced or newer or potentially riskier treatments, or maybe we take a top-down approach and start with the most effective medications that we have um, in all patients, and maybe we can, over time, withdraw withdrawal therapy. Um, we need a lot more data to inform us as to when is the best time to operate. And if we do need to think about an operation, if and when and how to treat patients after surgery. And understanding sort of the sequence of all of these treatment options and how um, option one might stack up or compare against option two um, sort of brings into existence the need for, 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 for me to explain the translational roadmap or how we get from early stage drug development to the knowledge that we need to inform treatment decisions that uh, patients and providers can make on a daily basis. And so fortunately, we have a number of drugs that come to um, early stage development through advances in basic uh, science, including things like the CCFA Genetics Initiative and Microbiome Initiative and other um, laboratory that's done at the bedside. The first step in the process is the randomized controlled trial where a new medication is compared to placebo in a select group of patients. And that answers the question, does this drug or does this treatment work better than placebo or work better than a sugar pill? Once we know that a drug has biologic activity, then we need to expand the um, studies to look at different populations or broader populations than those that were studied in the original clinical trials. What about children? What about the elderly? What about patients with multiple other conditions? These are all populations that are typically excluded from clinical trials, and as drugs come to market and they're used in the real world, we need to know do drugs work equally well in these populations, and are there subgroups or subpopulations where medications may work better or um, perhaps not as good? And finally, once we have a good sense as to what the best treatment options are for particular patients at particular points in their disease, we need to understand how to get that data embedded and implemented in day-to-day -day clinical practice. And that usually involves a, a series of strategies that are um, clustered under quality improvement work. So let's start at the sort of beginning of the process and understand a little bit more about the randomized controlled trial. This is the best way to prove efficacy of a treatment because it ensures a fair comparison between two or more different treatment groups. Often as a prerequisite for FDA Food and Drug Administration approval, um, the active medication will need to be compared against a placebo comparator group. But with randomized clinical trials, although they are the gold standard for producing strong evidence as required by the FDA, they're very expensive, they're very hard to recruit for, and as a result, take forever to complete. In addition, there are a number of shortcomings of randomized controlled trials. First and foremost, these studies are often too small and too short to detect either the rare or long-term outcomes or potentially adverse safety events. As I mentioned earlier, randomized trials are often 
too selected to be generalizable to all potential users or all potential patients or across all indications um, or, 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 or populations for which these medications may be used in actual real-world clinical practice. And finally, randomized trials are often too specific to assess the broad variety of outcomes that are important to patients. All clinical trials will have one or maybe two primary outcomes that uh, they're designed to detect whether the treatment is, uh, is effective. But as patients with inflammatory bowel disease, you all know much more than me that there are 10 or 20 or 30 things that, uh, that often are important to patients, not just the one or two that are measured in the context of a clinical trial. And so here's an example of too small, and this is a figure which shows on the y-axis the number of patients that need to be treated in a trial, um, and on the x-axis the incidence of what might be a rare or unexpected safety event. And on the next slide here, you can see that for a rare event of a treatment, um, say, for example, a cancer like a lymphoma that happens maybe one time out of every thousand or less, one would need to design and conduct a study that enrolls over 2,000 participants. And I'm a pediatrician, and I'll show in the next slide some of the um, landmark studies in pediatric Crohn's disease, the REACH study and the Markowitz study, which was a study of 6-MP or 6-mercaptopurine. And these studies enroll maybe 200 patients or, um, you know, even, even less, nowhere near the size of the population that is necessary to um, detect rare adverse events. As a result of many randomized trials being too small, this is sort of across the board, not just in inflammatory bowel disease, 51% of drugs, of medications, um, have an FDA label change due to major safety issues that are only discovered after marketing, after FDA approval. 20% of drugs get new, quote, black box warnings, which means that there are um, serious or significant new safety signals and 4% are ultimately withdrawn from the market due to safety de um, signals detected only after initial FDA approval and widespread availability. And so what don't we learn before FDA approval, and what are we trying to learn through comparative effectiveness and safety and patient-centered outcomes research? We know a drug works, but is it better than already approved existing conventional treatment options. Will it help symptoms that matter most to me? We know it might help to um, alleviate one or two symptoms that were studied in a clinical trial, but for me, I care about something different. How safe is the medication? Is it equally effective and safe in patients of varying ages, varying races, patients with disease attributes that may be different than those as part of the original trial, different diseases, disease history, and different comorbidities or um, medications that uh, patients take in the real world. And so comparative effectiveness and safety in outcomes research um, is based on using real-world data to study treatment effectiveness and safety. 
Comparative effectiveness studies are typically large enough to study rare outcomes, include people with comorbidities and often taking many um, medications. They include children, pregnant women, the elderly, um, include patients with a wide range of indications, including maybe patients with a little bit less severe disease than were originally enrolled in clinical trials. Uh, they study a wide range of outcomes, and many of these studies concentrate on long-term effects, both intended as well as non-intended. I'm going to give you a couple examples of outcomes research and comparative effectiveness research. And so in this case, it's an 18-year-old female with Crohn's disease treated with an anti-TNF biologic who develops a melanoma. And the question is, does Crohn's disease or potentially its treatments increase melanoma risk? And to study a rare outcome, as we discussed earlier, you need a lot of patients and a lot of data. And fortunately, we live in a world of big data. And the uh, figure to the right illustrates what healthcare claims data can look like. And so every time a patient has a healthcare encounter, whether they see a um, physician in the office, have a procedure, undergo an operation, or fill a prescription from an outpatient pharmacy, um, health insurance pays that bill, and therefore health insurance keeps records of that. And as researchers, we can pool together these healthcare claims over um, millions of Americans and pool together large studies of inflammatory bowel disease patients to study potentially some of these rare outcomes. And so here's an example of a study that our group did looking at melanoma risk in inflammatory bowel disease. And by pooling together um, claims data, we were able to look at over 100,000 patients with IBD, and we were able to look at the risk of melanoma and found that it was almost doubled in patients treated with an anti-TNF biologic agent. Now, understanding the risk of a treatment is one thing, but putting it into a context that patients, can, clinicians can understand is, uh, is actually a, a different framework or a different lens. And this study here, or this, uh, this figure here, sort of illustrates what a small risk, like a cancer risk of a patient with uh, a particular treatment might have. In this example, it's maybe two patients out of 10,000. And even if you double that risk, as you can see from the next side, and make it 4 out of 10,000, um, while it's a doubling of risk, the actual increase in risk to any individual patient is actually quite small. I think it always helps to sort of put the results of some of these studies into a, uh, a context that, uh, that may be um, easily interpretable by, uh, by patients. I'm going to scoot through these uh, next series of slides pretty quickly, but uh, you know, while healthcare claims and big data are really important, it's also important to think about what may be missing from healthcare claims data. And in fact, it's everything that's not part of the healthcare enterprise. So things like diet, things like sleep, things like mood, things like stress, things like exercise, things that are really important to patients with IBD and things that patients can do something about every day of their lives. And so CCFA Partners is a patient-powered research network that is fueled by 15,000 patients living with inflammatory bowel disease, not only in the United States, but around the globe. 
Um, here's a copy of what you would find on the website, ccfapartners.org. And the purpose of CCFA, CCFA Partners is really to focus on that patient-reported data, things like um, health behaviors and health outcomes and a strong commitment to studying topics that are um, highly prioritized by patient communities. And here's an example of a study that was done looking at the effects of sleep on inflammatory bowel disease. And in this case, we studied over 3,000 participants, and we asked patients about sleep symptoms at two time points. And what we discovered was that for Crohn's disease patients who were in remission at the time of the first survey, poor sleep increased the risk of having an IBD flare in the coming six months. This is a really important finding because it, uh, it really gets at a um, everyday behavior and lifestyle um, factor that patients can do something about. This data was, of course, published in a medical journal, but I think really importantly, at the same time of publication, was returned directly to patients in the CCFA Partners study um, by way of a email update. Um, one slide here um, gives the highlights of the study, and the next slide details a bunch of health tips that was uh, comprised by the Patient Education Committee of the CCFA. I'd like to move on to the third and final example, which is a pragmatic clinical trial. And sometimes to address the most important decisions faced by patients and their doctors every day, you really need direct head-to-head -head comparisons of routinely used therapies. And as a pediatric gastroenterologist, one of the most vexing questions in our community is as follows. In a child with Crohn's disease who is starting treatment with an anti-TNF, does adding a second immune suppressant improve outcomes without increasing risk or with an acceptable increase in risk? And sometimes databases or survey research may lead to the wrong answer, particularly in situations where patient factors and things like uh, disease severity may influence the treatments that are selected. And in cases like that, you need to do a clinical trial. But rather than a typical clinical trial that the FDA will require for drug marketing, you will often do a pragmatic trial. Another name for that is a large simple trial. And these are trials that are conducted in routine clinical care settings, everyday doctor's offices. They have very few inclusion and exclusion criteria. They don't involve special study visits or procedures, and they really focus on routinely collected data and outcomes. And here's a schematic of the pragmatic clinical trial that our group is just about to launch. You can see there are very few criteria for being involved in the study, um, being a child with moderate to severe disease, and starting on a biologic agent without any contraindication to receiving a second um, immune suppressant medication, in this case, methotrexate. Patients will be randomized to either receiving the anti-TNF in combination with the methotrexate or the anti-TNF alone, and will be followed in their regular doctor's office for a period of two years. And over that two-year period of time, outcomes will be assessed, including 
the induction and maintenance of steroid-free remission, a number of safety outcomes, and of course, uh, a host of patient-reported outcomes. And so here are the take-home messages. Comparative effectiveness research is really an essential component of IBD research, and it fills in many of the gaps that are not met through conventional randomized clinical trials. They focus on safety or direct comparisons of well-accepted and already FDA-approved and marketed treatments, and they include a wide range of topics, not just looking at the effects of medications, but also looking at the effects of lifestyle and health behaviors. And I think importantly are action-oriented. These studies are designed to directly inform everyday treatment decisions. And methods can include using studies that uh, analyze large databases and take advantage of the big data environment that we live in. They may also include patient surveys or pragmatic clinical trials. And so with that overview, I'd like to introduce the next speaker, Dr. Francisco Sylvester, who will talk about precision medicine and tailoring care to an individual patient. Dr. Sylvester? Dr. Kaplan, thank you very much. Um, I think that both you and Dr. Lewis have set the stage for this next and final portion of our presentation. So thank you very much to the CCFA for inviting me to speak at this webinar, as well as to our audience that um, is joining us today. So my task is to discuss precision medicine and IPD. Are we there yet? So you may have heard about precision medicine or personalized medicine, and these are uh, related concepts. Precision medicine is really an effort to establish what treatments that are available fit best in individual patients. And this is not really a new concept, although it has become more popular these days because of the available tools that we will briefly review in this presentation. So for example, if a person develops an infection with a bacteria, that bacteria can be cultured from the infection site, and we can learn what antibiotics kill that bacteria better than other antibiotics. So that is a form of precision medicine. We are choosing among different treatment options to best target that specific infection in a specific patient. Another example is in the field of cancer treatment. We now have become familiar, and this is pretty routine, that when a tumor is studied, for example, in a biopsy form or in a blood specimen, the physicians can understand with a great deal of detail proteins that are either inside of the cell or proteins that decorate the cell surface. And based on these markers, they can design a chemotherapy approach that best treats this particular cancer. So are we heading in that direction in IVD? So this is a very hot topic that has uh, taking the attention of industry, patients, and the federal government. And in fact, early this year, the Office of the President released a precision medicine initiative 
And in this document, one learns that precision medicine is an innovative approach to disease prevention and treatment that takes into account individual differences in people's genes, environment, and lifestyles. And again, the goal is to target available therapies more precisely for the individual patient. Furthermore, precision medicine gives clinicians, and I would say by extension, patients and families, tools to better understand the complex mechanisms underlying a patient's health, disease, or condition, and to better predict which treatments will be most effective. And the key word here is prediction. So we in IBD are developing tools to best predict outcomes of treatment in individual patients. We are also developing a better understanding of the disease processes themselves. We used to think not that long ago that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis were single disease entities. But with the advent of studies like the microbiome, the study of genetics, and environmental studies as well. We now know that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are really oversimplified labels. And indeed, we're dealing with a spectrum of diseases. And in one given patient, the specific characteristics of that Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is going to be different. And depending on those features, the person with this particular type of inflammatory bowel disease may respond differently to different treatments. And the landscape is even more complex because we now understand that environmental factors can affect the um, features of the microbiome and specifically, for example, the diet, but the diet is not the only element exposure to drugs like antibiotics early in life, the mode of delivery, C-section versus um, a normal delivery, and other features like exposure to the sun and the geographic area of origin, either rural or urban, can set up risk differentials for the uh, probability of developing IBD and how the disease will behave. Not only that, but the environment actually may modify the DNA in a relatively permanent way through a process called epigenetics that can be transmitted from generation to generation without a specific mutation in the DNA. So all these factors, the genetics, the environment, the habits of a person, the lifestyle, and other features influence disease behaviors. And in turn, these disease behaviors are going to uh, be predictive of how a specific individual will respond to treatment. I alluded at the beginning of the talk to the fact that we're getting better at analyzing data in the context of IBD that are becoming available. 
and we're becoming better at it because we have more sophisticated tools to collect data as well as to analyze these data. So we are in the era of what's called big data. Looks like I skipped the slides. So okay. So where we're going to be able to look at millions and millions of data points and organize them in ways that resemble networks. And in these networks, we can find nodes that are critical for the behavior of that network. For example, if we collect a piece of tissue, and in that piece of tissue we can characterize the many, many, many different factors that are either up or down due to the inflammatory response, we can catalog these differences in a table, but it's much more helpful to look at these differences in a network form, what's called a pathway form. So we identify the key elements of the network that need to be targeted with treatment. So in my mind, I look at this as a house of cards where we need to remove a specific card in the house of cards to bring this uh, house of cards down and thereby targeting the specific factor in the structure of the network that brings about the inflammation in a given individual. With all this information, we hope to bring about a future when a patient is first diagnosed based on features like their microbiome, their response to the microbiome by their immune cells, and other features like that that we can organize in big data form, in a network form, identify the specific nodes in those networks that need to be targeted, and predict how that particular individual will respond to treatment. And this looks like something that is far ahead in the future, but it is not. This is here and now. In pediatrics, for example, we have two studies that are one is actually finalizing and the other one is midway. And these studies have enrolled a large number of kids with either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and are looking at how these kids, based on their features at diagnosis, are responding to treatment. Therefore, we will have risk prediction tools that will allow us to determine at diagnosis what are the best treatments for these particular individuals. And therefore, we should impact outcomes and make the outcomes the best possible with the available therapy. So what is the role of um, CCFA in all this? CCFA is extremely important in supporting research in IBD that is really leading the way among uh, chronic inflammatory diseases on how to best target treatments to a person. And this support has resulted in CCFA having a role in the development of the vast majority of available treatments today. 
So to end, I would like to thank you for your attention. This concludes the formal uh, presentation. And now um, Angela Dobes will take over for a, a Q&A session. Thank you. So one of the uh, questions that came in was, how does a patient get involved in some of these cutting-edge clinical trials and or CCFA initiatives? And I wonder, Dr. Kaplman, if you'd like to address that. I'd be happy to. Um, so there is one initiative, the CCFA Partners Initiative, that both Dr. Lewis and I mentioned. And anyone who has access to the Internet can um, be, uh, be a part of that. Um, those of you may be on a computer now, and you can go to www.ccfapartners.org. Um, you can contribute as a patient to help shaping the research agenda and prioritizing topics that you think researchers and scientists should study. And you can also contribute uh, some of your own experiences as a patient um, to contribute to that uh, growing uh, database of knowledge um, which researchers can use to understand a lot of these uh, sort of real-world uh, issues that, uh, that are at play. Um, for those of you who are looking to be part of a formal clinical trial, um, you can certainly discuss this with your treating physician, specifically your treating gastroenterologist. Um, many will run trials out of their practice or office, um, but if not, uh, they're able to, uh, to hook up with a um, broader community of gastroenterologists and might be able to, uh, to give you suggestions. And similarly, um, there is a way to search all clinical trials that are available to patients with IBD and other conditions by going to the um, government-maintained website, clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and I believe that the CCFA has a separate, unique process to help match patients with clinical trials. Um, and maybe Angela or, or someone from the CCFA can comment a little bit more on um, the research match program. Sure. Um, if you go to ccfa.org and click on the research tab, you'll find um, lots of information about not only the research match program which helps you identify uh, specific trials based off of your symptoms but also all the trials that are a part of clinicaltrials.org that are for specifically uh, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So thanks uh, Dr. Kappelman, that was very informative. I know another, a bunch of questions have come in regarding the microbiome and if there's anything that we can do to improve the health of our microbiome or the diversity of our microbiome, you know, maybe supplements. And I was wondering, Dr. Lewis, is this is something you can maybe address? I'm happy to try and tackle that question. One of the challenges in answering that question is that we're still trying to understand what is the best microbiome, if you will, for somebody trying to uh, improve the status of their inflammatory bowel disease or to avoid uh, having a relapse of inflammatory bowel disease. In general, 
we see that healthy people have a more diverse microbiome, meaning they have a greater number of types of bacteria there and a greater balance in the amounts of those bacteria that are present. Uh, it does appear that people who uh, who consume a more agrarian diet and or live in a more agrarian societies tend to have more diverse microbiome. Uh, it waits to be definitively proven whether, for example, dietary interventions uh, that would uh, be of the nature of a more uh, gregarian agrarian type diet might actually help patients with their inflammatory bowel disease. Great. That was really helpful. Um, Dr. Sylvester, um, you talked a lot about precision medicine and, you know, how we can personalize treatment. And there is a couple questions regarding should treatment be based purely on inflammation levels alone even if a patient has no physical symptoms. Yes, Do you have any um, thoughts on that? Yes, so thank you for, for the question. It's a very important question because we're really uh, changing our way of judging the presence of inflammation. If you um, talk to a dermatologist and ask them to treat a skin condition, they will look at the skin to see what they need to be treating. But because the, um, the organs that are affected in inflammatory bowel disease are internal organs that are not as easily accessible, we have relied on um, other markers such as symptoms and uh, blood work and others um, to date. <laughs> but I think that thinking is shifting and we are much more um, interested in actually looking at the bowel itself to make some treatment decisions. And the reason why we're doing that is simply because looking at the bowel and looking how inflamed the bowel is, is a much more uh, reliable indicator of the presence of inflammation. We know that relying on uh, symptoms alone uh, it's almost like tossing a coin in the air and predicting whether it's going to be heads or tails. Um, it's, it's really not entirely reliable. There are certain stool markers that are being uh, developed, uh, like fecal calprotectin, for example, that have a good but not perfect correlation with how inflamed the tissue is. So hopefully over time we will develop a marker that does not require so much endoscopy to uh, accurately tell us about the presence or absence of inflammation. But at this time, with the present tools, the more reliable marker is actually to look at the tissue. Great. Well, I, I really want to say thank you to all our speakers for your insightful presentations and answers to our questions. The recording of today's webcast will be placed on CCFA's website within the next few weeks you will receive an update once it's available. Upon exiting today's webcast, you will be prompted to complete a brief program survey. We ask that you please take a few moments to provide your responses as your feedback is extremely important to us and as we plan our future educational activities. Um,
Um, and then I think we wanted to just briefly talk about some of the CCFA resources. Your participation in this webinar is a great start in learning to manage IBD. And there are many other ways that the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America can help. Our IBD Help Center is open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern at 888-694-8872 by email and info at ccfa.org. Or you can chat online with an information specialist directly via answer chat. And of course, you can always visit ccfa.org for more information. If you'd like to watch our other educational webcasts on IBD, please visit the website shown on the screen to explore other IBD-related topics. Uh, you can also connect with other IBD patients through the CCFA community website at ccfa.community.org or by joining a support group or our Power of Two peer mentor program. GI Buddy is our online tracking tool and mobile app that has everything you need to stay on top of managing your implementary bowel disease. Uh, you can just visit www.ccfa.org for more information. Uh, you can also participate in other educational events by connecting with your local chapter. Uh, please, again, always feel free to visit ccfa.org. Uh, if you're looking for fun, family-friendly activities to raise mission-critical funds for CCFA, please sign up for our team challenge, which offer both full and half marathons. Or you can always sign up for Take Steps. Uh, there's lots of walks in cities near you. And finally, uh, before exiting, please remember to complete the program evaluation. Uh, and we really want to extend a special thank you to Genentech and Sigma Tau for their support of this program. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, welcome and thank you for attending tonight's program, Journey Toward a Cure, Updates in Crohn's and Colitis Research. My name is Angela Dobes, and I am the director of the IBD Plexus program for CCFA. This program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech and a sponsorship from Sigma.